All right. Um, good evening, ladies and gentlemen. And again, uh, thanks very much for coming out. Wow. Wow. So uh, you may be here under false pretenses um, because last time I said we were going to do um, Buddhism, and that was a lie. Uh, so we're not going to do Buddhism because no one's interested in that. Um, but what I, <laughs> ha, 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 ha. That's my trick. Uh, so um, I realized that I just simply could not do Buddhism without having done Hinduism first because it just makes no sense out of context. And so I thought, all right, I just have to back up and, and we'll do Hinduism, which then allows us to, to understand what Buddhism is about. Because I was going to do Buddhism and then Hinduism, but it just really makes no sense. Um, if you don't have the background of, of Hinduism. So the question, question seven, um, is where is the universe? And we think we know the answer to this because we're in the Western philosophical tradition. If you type into Google universe, you'll get a bunch of pictures of stars and galaxies. I always put pictures of galaxies up, which by the way, is not in any way associated with the universe. Um, but what else do you show? Right? It's the impossible thing to show. So um, in the Hindu tradition, actually a little different than that, which I'll talk about, where the universe is, is inside. Everything you look for is inside. So much like how the Taoist tradition said, go look at nature, and it meant really go look at nature. In the Hindu tradition, or the Brahmin tradition, Brahmanism is really what we're talking about here, which is the foundations of Hinduism, um, where you're, you're told to look always into yourself. Whatever you want to know, whatever you're trying to figure out, whatever is bothering you, look inside. And so this is what we're going to be exploring this evening. But for some context, uh, two, two things. One, talk about our tradition and how we got here, and then talk about the, uh, the Hindu tradition and how they got to where they are today. So um, if, again, I started the first lecture, I talked about the importance of the animist tradition that seems to be everywhere in the world. And in the Western philosophical tradition, um, and others as well, by the way, it, it sort of went like this, gross oversimplification, yet here we go. Um, everything is alive with the spirit. So a mountain has a spirit, river has a spirit, tree has a spirit. So that tends to be the animist worldview. Um, that seemed to then morph into understanding those spirits as being anthropomorphic. So there was a wind god and a mountain god that looked more or less human and behaved more or less like humans, big dangerous humans, generally speaking. Um, and then this morphed again and that notion of the spiritual element got abstracted into eventually monotheistic gods or if you're in a system where it's, you know, where you have a good God versus an evil God. Um, so various forms of this, but the spiritual became this abstract being that lived someplace else and ruled the universe, had created the universe, and did everything in the universe, but is out there someplace um, that you may or may not be able to access. And so that continuing abstraction of the spiritual element used to be right there next to you in a tree, then it sort of moved a little further away into this anthropomorphic god who's in charge of trees, and then moved a little further away into sort of some big gods, and then it became just this completely abstract, sort of bizarro, uh, hard-to-calculate god um, of all-knowing, all-seeing, all-being, all-time. Um, so that's roughly our motion. The exact opposite motion took place in, in, in the Brahmanist Vedic tradition. So if you read the early Vedic texts, which are some of the oldest texts we have, by the way, 
it's clear that they're just moving out of that animist tradition. You see this in a lot of early literature. You can still see lots of things are alive, the spirits inhabiting everything. You do lots of sacrificing of things to these various spirits. The spirit is in you. Um, and if you want to learn things or know about things or discover things, and what you do in, in, the, in the Veda traditions, you take soma, uh, which is sort of some sort of drug. We're not exactly sure what it was, but it was a way of reaching enlightenment uh, and discovering different kinds of um, insights into yourself and into the world. Um, slowly, that became the Brahmanistic tradition, which is what you see recorded in the Upanishads. Um, they tend to try, if you look at the Hindu tradition, they say this is sort of the seamless move. It's not seamless in any way. If you read the Vedas and then you read the Upanishads, they're very different. Uh, and it's clear that the culture that produced them has moved along, clearly related, um, but quite different in their emphases. And so the Brahmanist tradition, which is where we're going to start tonight and what we're going to really focus on, basically has three elements that you need to know. If you can get those down, you'll be in business. And they'll tell you where the universe is, again, inside of you. First, the word Brahman comes from the notion, it's sort of the all-pervading universal force of life and being. It's not really a god. Um, it just is. And from that isness, all things come. It is the spirit that pervades all, all the universe. That the universe grew out of it, it is the universe, the universe will die with it and be reborn with it. So the, the Brahman is this all-pervading spirit that animates everything. So that's one. I mean, of course, many thousands of pages written on this, so that's a, we'll, we'll return to this, it's just sort of simplification. Two is you have this concept of the Atman. Now this is the spirit that resides inside of you, which is in fact just an aspect of the Brahman. So the entire universe lives inside of you in your Atman. Um, the image that's almost invariably used for this to help us understand is the Brahman is a tree and your Atman is a leaf of the tree. The leaf is not the tree and it is the tree. Right? That's the, the tricky thing. It's, it's not the totality of the tree but it is definitely part of the tree. So everybody, every living thing, in fact, has the spiritual essence in it. And that spiritual essence is connected, absolutely, to the Brahman, which is the spiritual power of life that pervades everything in the universe. Everything lives and dies and grows through that. So Brahman, basically the all-pervading force of the universe. Atman, that spirit in you that lives. And then three... Um, sort of uh, samsara. And this is the notion that everything is a cycle. Everything. I mean, everything is cyclical. If you look at nature, one of the things that will certainly leap out at you at any moment um, is, hey, the, the seasons, the floods, the, uh, the, the snow comes, and then spring comes. Animals live and they die. The birds migrate. People are young, they're middle-aged, they're old, and they die, and then they're born. This, this notion that, that, that things are cyclical is absolute. So, it, you know, we say, oh, God is eternal. In, in Hinduism, and particularly in Brahmanism, God is not eternal. Everything passes. Even the Brahman passes, and then it just reproduces itself. So, 
you know, what that means precisely is hard to determine, but this notion is everything is cyclical, and so you always want to look for the changing and the passingness of things. So, um, what this means for you and for the Atman is you're going to be reborn because everything is reborn, because everything is cyclical. You're born, you grow, you die, you're reborn. The process is clear. Everything you look at in nature has that process. Ah, except the Atman, which is that part of you that survives from life to life to life to life to life. Because it's part of the Brahman, which is the universe, which of course it doesn't perish all the time, therefore what is permanent? The permanence is the Atman that is in you. So you're in this cycle of birth and rebirth, growth, death, you're following just like everything else in nature, but you're also containing within you the seed of permanence. And that seed of permanence is the universe, or at least a part of the universe. And, and you carry that with you again from life to life to life. So when you're reincarnated, what happens is that your Atman comes back alive and is, is reborn and then experiences it again and again and again and again. These cycles go on for millions of billions of years and then at some point even the entire universe absorbs itself, dies, vanishes, and is reborn and then the whole cycle begins again because everything follows that cycle. Now, um, now, people go, oh, well, this is the Hindu version of soul. No, ain't wrong. Uh, because the worldview that goes along with it, which we'll see here, is completely and utterly different. It, it, it engenders an outlook that we struggle with, I struggle with when I try to read it and get it into my thick mind, because it runs counter to so much uh, that we've, we've been told that our culture takes for granted the things that we emphasize. So I want to read uh, some actual texts here from the uh, Isa and Katha Upanishads. There's a lot of Upanishads, by the way, about mm, 200. The earliest ones uh, are about, say, 1,000 to 500 BC, but some of the Upanishads have been written as recently as the 15th century AD. But by about 500 AD, they had been pretty well systematized. Um, but the Upanishads are, this, are the core texts. Uh, that ponder these kinds of questions. So here's a couple of quick excerpts just to give you a flavor. Um, he, uh, he who sees all beings in the self and the self in all beings, he never turns away from it. He who perceives all beings as the self or him, how can there be delusion or grief when he sees the oneness everywhere? He is all encircling, resplendent, bodiless, spotless, without sinews, pure, untouched by sin, all-seeing, all-knowing, transcendent, self-existent. He has disposed all things duly for eternal years. Uh, so Isa Upanishads chapter 6 through 8. So in this case, he who sees all beings in the self and the self in all beings, that there's the key. Because you have that Brahman seed in you, and so does everything else, you're in everything else and everything is in you. It's a reciprocal relationship. And that if you see that, if you can get that profound insight, then you no longer are separate from the rest of the world. In fact, you're part of the rest of the world. This, this is the key insight. Then you become the universe, which you are, but we forget. Right? Our feeling of separateness and individuality uh, misleads us to a certain extent, as it were. Um, and that's one of those emphases there. 
Um, so here's the second passage. The self is never born, nor does it die. It did not spring from anything, nor did it spring from it. The ancient one is unborn, eternal, everlasting. It is not slain, even though the body is slain. If the slayer thinks that he slays, or the slain thinks that he is slain, both of these know not, for it neither slays nor is slain. The self is subtler than the subtle, greater than the great. It dwells in the heart of each living, living being. He who is free from desire and free from grief, with mind and sense tranquil, beholds the glory of the Atman. The wise who know the self, bodiless, seated within perishable bodies, great and all-pervading, grieve not. This self cannot be attained by study of the scriptures, nor by intellectual conception, nor by frequent hearing. He whom the self chooses, by him alone is it attained. To him the self reveals its true name, or true nature, excuse me. That's the Katha Upanishads. So, so a second aspect of this here, um, you don't get there by reason or study or scripture. And this is important because both Islam, uh, in particular Islam, but also Christianity are religions of the book, as is Judaism, religions of the book. Right at the core of Hinduism is, lad, don't trust books. It's not in the book because the book doesn't have an Atman. And if it doesn't have an Atman, it doesn't matter. So we're going to write this down, maybe study it a little bit, but nah, no. It's really not going to be that helpful. Hence the emphasis in the Indian tradition on a guru. Only another person can really help you, and you need to touch that person. Quite literally, you need to be in contact with them because a text can't do it. Similarly, reason will not help you. This is not something you think about. It's something that has to be experienced. This comes up over and over and over again. So if, you, if you've ever tried to read any of Aristotle's texts, what you realize is he's trying to reason his way through everything. Sometimes this works. Sometimes this does not work. Um, the Brahmanist tradition really presses on that aspect that says, no, it's experiential. Because you have the universe in you, what you want to do is focus on experiencing that. Don't be distracted. It's not, you can't reason your way there. It's sort of the exact opposite of Euclid. I mentioned this before, right? Where Euclid says, look, here's the eternal, all-knowing rules for the universe, and you derive them from human reason. Um, for, for in, in, in the Brahman traditions, like, you know, no, that is not how you do this. Reason is not going to get you there. Experience is going to get you there. Really heavy emphasis on what you feel and how you feel it and how you reflect upon it. Um, so that, those are the cores. And one more passage from the Bhagavad Gita, which is later, but it's always fun to quote the Bhagavad Gita. Um, when Brahma's day is manifest, this multitude of living entities comes into being, and at the arrival of Brahma's night, they are all annihilated. Again and again the day comes, and this host of beings is active, and again the night falls, O Partha, and they are helplessly dissolved. Yet there is another nature which is eternal and is transcendental to this manifested and unmanifested matter. It is supreme and is never annihilated. When all the world is annihilated, that part remains as it is. The supreme abode is called unmanifested and infallible, and it is the supreme destination. When one goes there, he cannot come back. That is my supreme abode. The supreme personality of Godhead, who is greater than all, is attainable by unalloyed devotion. Although he is present in his abode, he is all-pervading, and everything is situated with him. So again, this notion of 
Where is it? It's everywhere. What happens when it passes? Everything passes. What happens when it's reborn? Everything's reborn because nothing actually, really, truly that matters passes. This is the key. Nothing that really is important passes. So everything is cyclical. At the same time, it contains this core of unchanging uh, contact with the ineffable, immortal, eternal, uh, hard to describe, of course, because you can't access it by reason. So, give you sort of banal examples of this uh, and what it means and then what it uh, sort of extrapolate out there from the logic. So, first thing this means is everything that's important is inside of you, not outside of you. Anything that perishes, which is to say everything in the universe, is not important. Because that which is imperishable, which is to say only that which is inside of you that can be accessed through you, that's what matters. And so you need to turn your attention from the outside world to the inside world. And if you, this, by the way, yoga, uh, if everybody, you know, we, we know yoga now, but yoga more or less just means practice. It means to do something. So everything is theoretically a yoga. But for thousands of years, uh, the, the Hindu tradition has been working on meditation, physical exercises, uh, spiritual exercises, physical, obviously, stretching, dietary concepts, musical concepts, all designed to access the inside. Um, and, and, that, and that is what yoga is. It means that attempt, that practice, no matter what you're doing, to explore, discover, touch, come closer to your Atman, because that's what really matters. Uh, so I, I was thinking about this, trying to think of an example. So I have a friend coming, very excited, he's coming next week. And I thought, okay, you know, vacuum the house, mow the lawn, water, you know. I, all right, I'm, I'm just rearranging the physical environment because I want them to feel welcome and, you know, sort of, sort of like, you know, here it is, this is going to be exciting, it's going to be great. Ah, that's totally wrong because none of that matters, right? What I should be doing is trying to compose myself. Right? He's not really coming to see whether or not I vacuumed the rug. I would assume. Maybe he is. All that. Uh, but I doubt it. I doubt it. I doubt he's coming to inspect the rug. Um, but you know, we work ourselves, or at least I do, to work ourselves into a frenzy organizing that which is not important. This is the Brahman concept. That that all is is perishable. It's material. It's exterior. What's important is you. You should be looking inside yourself to try to compose yourself, to try to become the best person of you, you can. Then you'll be welcome into them. Because then you'll be the person, the best person you can be at that moment. And theoretically, that's really what they're coming to see. Right? That's, that's the actual concept. But right, we do the other. Right? Well, I'm, clear, I'm not alone in this, right? That I'm not the only person who's busily doing all the wrong thing. Uh, and so I, I understand the concept, but still it's like, ah, but you know, that material world really, really matters. Ah. The emphasis, again, is a matter of emphasis in the Brahmanic tradition that becomes the foundation of modern Hinduism is just 99% the other direction. It's what's inside that matters, and you really, really want to work hard at accessing that. And everything else is sort of a distraction. It just shows that you're ignorant. It shows that you haven't, you know, really understood 
what's happening yet. And so what this does, of course, well, it does a lot of things. One is it throws off the resplendent richness of the Brahmanic Hindu tradition because how many different ways are there to pursue this? Lots. And so anything you can think of, they've tried a hundred thousand. I mean, it's just infinite. You want to be an ascetic? Great. You want to fast? You want to, you want to have, um, you know, you want to be celibate and fast and, and don't eat anything? Hey, they've got a tradition for you. You want to have orgies? They've got a tradition for you. You want to drink a lot and pass out and take drugs? They've got a tradition for you. You want to exercise? They've got a tradition for you. You want to box? They've got a tradition. Music? The entire, I mean, you cannot really understand Indian, particularly North Indian classical music, without understanding that it's not about the music, it's a spiritual exercise. It's all derived from the human voice, and the human voice is derived from these breathing exercises that actually come from the Upanishads and the Vedas that still structure the whole content of, of North Indian classical music to this day. But it's from some of the oldest texts we have in the world, the human breath. Um, and so when it, it, if you hear North Indian classical music, it tends to sound odd to us in some ways, beautifully moving potentially, but its goal is completely, it's just, it's not, it's not driving at what we think it's supposed to be driving at. Entertainment is its least uh, important aspect of what it's trying to achieve. Enlightenment would be great. Theoretically, if, if they play well enough, you'll become enlightened. Uh, I, I had the pleasure of hearing Ustad Ali Akbar Khan play one time, and I think he was right there. I mean, he was probably, but he'll get you as close as you're probably going to get. I mean, but that's the idea, is that it's, it's what he's shooting for when he performs or, or when they sing. Uh, is an entirely different experience because it's supposed to be inside. It's supposed to put you in touch, not with them, but with your own eternal, immortal self, which is in fact the universe. And so this creates all kinds of interesting problems, of course, also, um, where almost our entire emphasis is like, oh, Let's uh, build a temple. Now, India is filled with temples. Let's, let's be absolutely clear. Totally and completely filled with temples, um, but not of any particular kind. They have every kind, because theoretically, anything can work. So both uh, the Old Testament and, and, to a certain extent, the New Testament, Islam says, do not make idols. No idols. And the reason they don't want us to make idols is because we'll confuse the idol with God. Hinduism says, knock yourself out with the idols. Make all of the idols you want, because it doesn't matter. Anything that's done with the right sort of internal devotion is correct. It's not having an idol or not having an idol. That's, you're again, right? You're messing up on the outside. It's whether or not you have the appropriate internal devotional instinct. It, again, everything turns back inside. And so it's amazingly poly, it's polytheistic on the grandest of scales, except for it's sort of not also. Because it says, well, of course, those are all just aspects of the same universal force. So there is either no gods or a billion. You take your choice. And anyone you like uh, is, is, is for you uh, to, to, to follow, to have, to have devotion towards. 
And there's the other part of the problem also. Just because you're an atheist doesn't mean you can't be a really good practicing Hindu. If that works for you as a devotional strategy to discover your Atman, then knock yourself out. Atheists are good Hindus too. See, all of that is you're just confusing yourself with external things that don't matter because you're supposed to look in. And again, if you look at Western philosophy, you can find a little bit of this here and there. Plato suggests some of it, but he said there's a truth and it lives out in this eternal forms um, and your soul might touch it and then comes back to earth and so there might be a little access there um, in the Socratic dialogues there, but really, no, logic, reason, what does the evidence show? How can we argue ourselves into this? There's very little of this notion until you get to maybe the medieval aesthetics uh, that you get any sense that, wow, where you're really looking is inside of you. The difference though in our tradition, the Western tradition, is by the time you get to the Middle Ages, you, you're awful. Right? So this is the key thing to remember in the Middle Ages is that your original sin, you're fallen, and you're terrible. And so what you're doing when you meditate and fast uh, and have devotion is trying to atone for your terribleness. And the best you can do is hope that God doesn't smite you for your rottenness. That's a win. This is not, see, the Brahmin tradition is like everybody. You know, caste system, which is, you know, hugely terrible in many ways. But even in that system, it says, no, look, everybody has that immortal bit in them. Everybody is potentially um, perfectible because you have the same thing. You are the universe. Literally, where do you look? You are the universe inside. And so again, if you read, for instance, the Bhagavad Gita, which is short, I always recommend this. The, the Mahabharata, if anybody's ever uh, read this or read parts of it, immensely long, 12 to 14, 16 volumes, depending on the edition you're looking at, uh, written over a long period of time. Uh, it's basically an encyclopedia of everything. And so whatever you want, it's in there. So it's hard to make any kind of generalizable claims about Hinduism because if you look at the main texts like the Mahabharata, particularly the Ramayana, um, wow, it's just like you can find evidence for any argument you wish to make. Uh, if you look at something shorter like the Bhagavad Gita, it's a little more comprehensible. But even the Bhagavad Gita, there's chapter after chapter where, um, in this case, uh, Krishna is talking to Arjuna, where Krishna said, well, you want to find God? We'll do this. And Arjuna says, huh. And so Krishna says, okay, well, don't do that, do this. And Arjuna goes, hmm, maybe. Then Krishna says, well, okay, forget that, do this. And he gives him like 19, just over and over, we'll try that, do this, have that path, try that way, do it this way. You know, it's like, he just keeps throwing out, it'd be as if um, somewhere in the, the New Testament that somebody came to Jesus and said, well, how should we know God? And Jesus said, well, fast in the desert. And they said, ooh, I don't want to fast in the desert. Okay, that's it, knock, knock yourself out. Live in the city, have a big feast. Mm, I don't like cities. Okay, great, uh, live in the suburbs, have a car, get a job. Uh, I don't want to work a job. That's, don't worry about that. Or be a bum. Right? He just kept saying, just try this, try that, do this, right? Whatever, it's all good. It's all fine. It's all going to be happy, right? But there's no sense that you're a rotten, awful, evil, bad person at your core. Because at your core, you're the aspect of the immortal Brahman, which is the universe, the real universe. Not the fake universe that we see, the universe that they always show you pictures of. Because um, that's all just not really there. And so, as, as last time I mentioned with Taoism, 
where you know, just look at nature. Curiously, Hinduism, you would think, because everything is manifest, all living things, uh, unlike Taoism, which likes rocks a lot and dead things, but in, in, in Hinduism, they tend to focus on living things, but like plants and fish, uh, and, and of course, humans. But the notion is, if you look inside of a living thing, what you find is, again, at least a tiny spark of that universal force that you have. So that's why it says, that when you look at everything and see yourself in it, and everything in you, now you're on the right path. But what this means, again, is the externals of nature don't matter again. You're not looking at plants, you're looking at the eternal essence inside of the plant. You're not looking at a dog, you're looking at the internal essence inside of the dog. And so this is why if you've ever seen these documentaries and go, oh, those crazy Hindus, they have a rat temple where they worship rats, right? And we go, uh, rats, we don't like rats, and we certainly don't want to worship them in a temple. That's crazy. Uh, no, it's only crazy if you think you're not a rat. This is, then it's crazy, but we are. And if you recognize that the living spark that is in you is the same as the living spark that is in everything, then at the important level, at the level that things matter, you are a rat. And that when you perform devotions to rats, you're performing a devotion to yourself, to the, to the binding spirit of the entire life of the universe. See, and we just don't go for this at all, right? We just know that is wrong. I'm not a rat. And I can reason with you and prove that I'm not a rat in any number of ways, but yeah, the Brahmanistic tradition is like, yeah, all that is true, but it's only correct about the things that don't matter. Uh, another, I was trying to think of examples of this. You talk to people like, okay, if you list all the reasons not to have kids, they're expensive, time-consuming, right, uh, emotionally draining, um, you know, uh, just, what, what a waste, what an absolute, it makes no sense whatsoever if you calculate that way, which is probably wrong, right? But if you take out all of the things that matter, like love, family, joy, sure, the math doesn't add up. And from the Brahmanistic tradition, that's what we do basically 99.9% .9 of the time. We, we keep doing the math and doing the reasonable things, and it never adds up. But I think if you, if you think about the things that do give you great joy and fill you with life and vigor, how often do they actually make any damn sense? I, I think rarely, right? It's, it's sort of the, the bizarre, irrational, over-the-top, excessive things that sort of give you that, that sense of life, that sense of, of, of joy, joie de vivre, you know, just like, oh, I'm just flooded with, 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 with greatness and wonder and life is spectacular and the universe is one, and woo, right? That sense, how often do you feel that when you're being moderate? <laughs> right, it's just, it's, a moderation is probably not gonna get you there. So think Aristotle, one of Aristotle's big claims, like the golden mean. You don't wanna be too extreme on one side, and you don't wanna be too extreme on the other, golden mean. 
Um, which I think the Brahmanistic tradition is like, well, that's wrong, <laughs> right? Because you're never, the Brahmanistic tradition says, hey, do this, stuff yourself full of drugs and go sit in the desert for about a month and then see what you think. That literally, they would do this. Um, and they came back with crazy ideas, not surprisingly. But what, what they're doing is exploring inside. This is what fasting is about. Fasting is not about, oh, being pure and all that sort of part of it, but uh, basically it's like, well, I want to explore inside. I want to see what happens when I don't take in food. What happens when I meditate for long, 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 long periods of time? Can I, can I get closer in touch with myself by slowly removing all those external distractions? Um, oddly, and this is important to understand, there is something of a monastic tradition in, in the Brahmanistic and Hindu uh, culture, but generally they didn't, I mean, it does happen, you know, they get the guy sitting out in the mountains or in a cave, but generally speaking, they wanted to be around people. This is, this is the curious thing. The world is not evil. It might be distracting, overwhelming, problematic, might throw you off. But generally, lots of the stories and narratives, the, the, the holy men, if they're in a forest, they're in a forest with like 500 other people, right? He was alone in the forest with, and then they list the names of the people that he's alone in the forest with, right? And you're like, wow, that's a lot of people to be alone with. But often, as often as not, they're just in cities. They're just sitting there in a city, but, you know, because you, you, everybody is, is holy. And trying to eliminate the world so that you're isolated and not distracted is not really the point. The, the point is, wherever you are, okay, wherever you go, there you are. Uh, and so wherever you are, you should be able to look inside of yourself, and what you find there is what's inside of everybody else. If you've done it right, everything that's out there is in here. But you can't reason your way to it. And so again, the Western philosophical tradition has a teeny tiny bit of an emphasis on reason. Um, you know, it's one of those things you find a lot. Uh, it's one, and, and so that we struggle with this because it says, no, it's experiential. This is, it'll come up over and over again. If you want to know, meditate. How does yoga feel? Do yoga and you'll find out. Does it make you feel better? Does it make you feel healthier? Does it give you more insight into yourself? If yes, then that's yoga. If not, you're probably doing it wrong. Right? That's, again, this, this notion of that's try something else. Um, you know, what is music for? Well, it depends on how you listen. I mean, can you listen to music wrong, according to Hinduism? Yes, you can. If it's external or just excites your mind, or distracts you, then you're listening wrong, or the music's wrong, or both. If it helps you wake in your own internal awareness and strips away all the, the, the matter around you that's distracting you from that awareness and puts you in tune with the person who's producing the music, ah, <clears throat> now you're doing it correctly. That's that notion. The word we tend to use for this is, is tricky because we have a couple of words. Transcendence. And transcendence you know, means to get out of, go above. And Hinduism is, no, it's like, no, it's not. It's, you're, you're there. You're just confused about it. 
And we also use the word spiritual, which, I mean, you almost have to use this when you're trying to translate these sorts of concepts. Um, but, the, you know, it's, uh, our notion of spirit is this sort of airy, ineffable, sort of hazy thing that we feel. And, and Hinduism wants to say, just the other way around. That's the, the, the spirit is the hard thing. It's the firm, it's the living, breathing, palpable force. It's all of the material stuff that we get confused by. You know, how long do things last? A thousand years? So, so your, your Atman, as part of the eternal universe, is probably going to last for another billion or so years. And so what you want to do is try and look at the world that way. And go, oh, if I lived long enough to experience the sun burning out, say, a thousand times... Would I think of the sun as permanent or impermanent? I would go, wow, that star is incredibly unreliable. Every couple of billion years, it flares up and goes dark. That's no good. Much less anything smaller like mountains or planets. Even the universe right, is, is temporal. In fact, this is, when they discovered the universe was expanding, which meant that it has a history, which meant that it's either going to burn out in the cold or collapsing to heat, the Hindus were very happy. They're like, yes, we've mentioned that. We mentioned that about 2,000 to 3,000 years ago. We tried to tell you everything in the universe is living. And everything in the universe follows the living processes. So the universe has to be expanding or contracting because that's what all living things do. And it is going to die and then it's going to be reborn because that's what all things do. And the fact that this was a major scientific breakthrough just shows you haven't been paying attention to your Vedic texts. Read your Upanishads, it's all there, very clearly written out. But, but right, but, you, but that, ah, we don't want to think that. The universe is just a big living organism of a sort, and it's going to perish. Or at least the part that we tend to hang up ourselves on. Now, uh, it's important to know people are going to say, because people always say, oh, this sounds a lot like Buddhism. Um, uh, so it, it does sound something like Buddhism, because Buddhism, of course, grows out of this tradition. But it, it has some things that really work against it. Um, and we're going to talk about, again, Buddhism next time. But, but keep in mind that within this sort of tradition, Hinduism is happy to say that Buddhism is a type of Hinduism. It doesn't bother it in any way. So I go, that's fine. In fact, in India, Buddhism was basically reabsorbed. So there's still Buddhists in India, but their Buddhism looks a lot more like Brahmanic Hinduism than it does like the traditional original text that you get from early like Pali translations and stuff. Um, and it's, it's sort of the Buddhism that you see outside of India that may be closer to potentially the original texts. But, but it is not about taking yourself out of the world it's about being in the world. Uh, it's not about reasoning yourself to places. It's about feeling, experiencing your place. Um, it's, a, it's not about getting out of the world. It's about getting into it. See, it, we, we think of, oh, escaping. Spirituality lifts us out of this world. No, it gets you into the world. It gets you into the real world, the one you're not confused by. So this is why if you became a, a really uh, advanced holy person, you can remember your past lives because you carry all those experiences with you in your Atman. And so in theory, you should be able to access these. 
And you can then learn from all the things that have happened to you over a thousand, thousand incarnations. Uh, and so that's a, you know, a, a truly profound spiritual uh, a person, would that would be like one of their center accomplishments. In theory, if you're eternal, this should be possible. It all, it all comes back around and around and around again. It's not going anywhere. You, you, so in a way, so it's hard to know when you look at this, are you immortal or are you permanent or what does that mean? But notice it doesn't track to uh, our traditions at all because it's not like you have a soul that's fixed and then goes to heaven. That wouldn't make a lot of sense. Um, and then being reborn, because that doesn't make that much sense either, because if you're born into uh, original sin, that doesn't really translate. Um, you know, so, so, so we struggle with that. Um, but, but keep in mind, these are those, um, excuse me, <clears throat> those core insights, though, remain. And so what, what to take away from this question of where is the universe? Um, I think there is in no way you can say that our culture underestimates the importance of the material. <laughs> Would you say that's fair? Yeah. That we don't that we don't like overlook the significance of it. You could argue that Brahmanic Hinduism underestimates the importance of the material, but certainly we don't underestimate it. We we and believe in the material world. It's absolutely central to the way we think about everything. Um, but what this tradition asks you to do, and I think it's a good exercise, just like with the Taoist tradition, is to try, just try this out. Um, next time something is bothering you outside, look inside. The next time something material uh, is, is disturbing you, just look inside. Is there a way to fix this that is inside of me and not outside in the world? That, that is like the constant thought experiment that it asks us to do. It, and also, it's not problems to be solved. This is another, because you can't reason your way through it, you might want to think of it maybe more like experiences to be had. Right, if you can take problems and say, well, this is an experience, and I need that experience to become part of all the experiences, which is part of all the experiences in the universe, a, you get context, and B, it sort of drains all of the stress and all of the stuff that we pile on it. And that, I mean, it's hard, again, to overemphasize how much this is the central driving tenet. Because everything that we've been trained, our whole civilization in the West, says, roughly speaking, the opposite. That is the external, the physical, the logical, the rational, the textual, by the way, that which is written down that matters. And so when somebody says, or an entire philosophical tradition says, no, it's the internal, the ineffable, the irrational, that which is not written down, that matters. Wow, that blows our mind. So this is why we have such a struggle, even today, trying to figure out what the hell is going on with India, <coughs> cultural, political, artistic movements, because it's, you know, they're coming into the modern world, they're, they're being westernized to a certain extent, it's still not the same. Just like the Chinese today, you modernize all that, still not the same. Well, it's partly because these philosophical traditions, in this case, go back several thousand years, and at their core, fundamentally different mindset, which gives them a fundamentally different outlook within that tradition. 
So samsara, everything is cyclical. Atman, inside of you is an eternal living flame that is tied to the Brahman, which is the universe as eternal living flame. So you are the universe. So if you want to know anything, learn anything, see anything, you look inside, because it's all there. Thank you very much.